This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to Newsweek's Foreign Service. I'm Meryn Gidda. And I'm Josh Lowe. And each week we take a look at the big stories in the US and what they mean for the rest of the world. This week, we're taking a look at Donald Trump's promises. Can he keep them? He promised all sorts of stuff during the election campaign. The Washington Post found 76 specific things he promised. There were probably a whole load more, to be honest. And since taking office, he said he's going to move fast and start acting on what he said he'd deliver. Well, that's one promise he certainly has kept because he's been moving at a very fast rate. He's signed several executive orders to an extent that if he if he keeps this up, he will massively exceed the number of executive orders President Obama signed when he was in office. And it's a little bit frustrating because Obama came under so much flack from the Republicans for the number of orders he was signing. And Donald Trump is seemingly doing it without criticism. But it's also pretty frustrating for us because this podcast simply cannot keep up with the number of orders he signed. Yeah, so what we've done is we've picked five key promises and he's actually already beaten us to it on one of them. We recorded a discussion with some guests on Tuesday. Um, On Wednesday at the time of recording, he's expected to announce some movement on it. So this promise is about restricting immigration, uh, massively curbing the people coming into the country from areas of the world associated with terrorism, as he puts it. And he's expected to say he's going to sign various executive orders on this, including one putting a freeze on the American refugee programme. So that's the foreign side of things. But domestically, Trump's made some big promises too. He said that he's going to bring back manufacturing jobs that have left the US for countries where labour is a lot cheaper. And he says as part of all of this, he's going to double the US's economic growth from around 2% to more than 4% a year. Also on the domestic front, he wants to slay that kind of classic Republican bugbear, uh, Obamacare, Obama's uh, expanded public health care system. Um, he's signed one executive order making some movement on that, but there's quite a lot more to do, particularly in Congress. And we want to look at whether he can actually do it. 
And just days after the Chinese President Xi Jinping wowed delegates at Davos by promising that China would get tough on climate change, President Trump is saying that he's going to do the opposite. He wants to pull out of the UN climate change agreement that was signed in Paris recently, and he wants to pull out of a number of UN environmental programs as well. So that's enough from us. Let's go to a discussion that we recorded on Tuesday with some great guests at Senate House in London. I'm Sarah Churchwell. I'm the Chair of Public Understanding of the Humanities at the School of Advanced Study, University of London. I'm Leslie Vinjamori. I direct the Center on Conflict, Rights, and Justice at SOAS, and I'm an Associate Fellow of the U.S. Program at Chatham House. Let's get started. Let's get into it, because Trump um, has made many, many promises, um, promises both you know before he took office and since taking office about what he's going to do. And I think the big one is repealing Obamacare. So, I mean, let's just ask the obvious question. How likely is this? Can you just repeal Obamacare? Well, I, I'm afraid at the risk of being a difficult guest, I am going to have to back up before answering that question, which is, I think the real question is, does he even want to keep his promises if we're going to talk about this? Because he clearly made so many promises that he did not mean. Um, he clearly has a long, you know, a lifelong track record of breaking whatever promises he makes in whatever ways suit him. So I think with every individual issue, you have to ask yourself first, did he really mean it? And then ask yourself, or did the people around him really mean it? And then ask, can it be done? I think in the case of Obamacare, they did mean it. Um, I think certainly the Republicans do want to repeal it. The problem, of course, is that they don't have anything to put in its place, and 30 million Americans will be left uninsured if they try to repeal it overnight. Um, in the in the specific case, without getting into too much technical detail, in the specific case of Obamacare, because it's tied up in all kinds of things that are actually beyond the um, immediate budgetary power of the GOP, which is what they're kind of invoking right now, it has to get passed by the Senate Democrats is the is the bottom line. And um, and the Senate Democrats have said they will hold that line. Uh, and Sh- Schumer has said that's never going that they're not going to support repealing Obamacare. So they at the very best, they have a fight on their hands. And I think it's also becoming increasingly clear even to them that there is diminishing popular support for this. I think I think that's exactly right. The the, the standard was elevated quite dramatically by under President Obama's leadership. Americans didn't used to expect that they would have access to health care. There, there's long been a problem with this, a deficit in this area of public provision, and that's fundamentally altered. So the desire to repeal and replace runs into a hard brick wall, which is politics. Um, there absolutely has to be some sort of provision in place. And remember that Trump's entire appeal has been to the the people, right? And so to, to repeal a policy that takes care of working Americans um, or, un, or the unemployed is potentially devastating politically and to his primary campaign message. But I think the, the idea is to turn um, Obamacare, to turn to create a policy that delegates us back to states and gives states choice. But how you actually do that, we don't have a plan in place. And so it becomes, as Sarah said, a very difficult exercise going forward. But so it does have some level of mandate for it, of course, in that it was a kind of key campaign promise. He's just been elected on it. At the moment, Democrats are going to kind of hold the line against it. But do you think in future, if, say, there is more of a plan of what to replace it with, which is currently one of the big questions, um, Democrats might be persuaded to say, well, on the one, you know, firstly, this was voted for. Secondly, we've got a plan to replace it. 
might you be able to chip off enough Democrat support there to, to get a repeal through? Sure. I mean, I think there are a couple of important points here. One is the reason why it's known as Obamacare is because the GOP rebranded it that in order to try to make what was in fact a fairly popular and and uh, in many ways appealing looking uh, solution uh, to, to brand that as a failure. And, and there have also been people saying there are lots of Americans who seem to be under the impression that Obamacare failed and the ACA is the GOP uh, version of it and that that's what they'll get. So there's going to be all kinds of rebranding and blaming the other side that's going to happen anyway. But even Democrats and even people who are broadly in support of Obamacare, nobody thinks it's a perfect solution. Everybody knows it has problems. Everybody knows it has been expensive in some ways. It hasn't done all the things they wanted it to do. And and many people on the, on the Democrat side would say that that was because of the limits that the GOP put on it, so that they were already constrained in what they could deliver. So the fact is, is that I think that anybody who is a um, politician of principle, which seems, I'm sorry to say as an American, to be a shrinking group, rapidly shrinking group on the Hill, but there are still some, um, will surely take the position that if there is a good system, and that's a very big if in my view, but if they can put forward a good system that really will care for people, then I think that anybody of conscience will vote for it. Because the goal here, surely, hopefully, is not to score political points, but to make sure that a good healthcare system is in place. Only Congress can vote to repeal Obamacare, but we know that Donald Trump can do some fairly sneaky things to sort of send it into, you know, what's been termed as a death spiral. His executive order that he's issued, it's quite vague, but he's basically saying to federal agencies, you know, you can sort of reduce funding, right, for Obamacare. And there's bigger things that he can do that would really affect how Obamacare is. So ignoring Congress, because we know that some Republicans do not want to repeal it just yet, and we know the Democrats don't. Ignoring Congress, do you think Trump could could sort of stick the knife into Obamacare without having anything there to, to really replace it? Well, I think this is my primary concern. So the executive order that you referred to did, did suggest that there need be no further implementation if it entails more spending. Um, and so, of course, this creates all sorts of dilemmas for a, a policy that hasn't fully been implemented, that has another year to go in terms of people subscribing. Um, and so a lot of the devil will be in the detail of implementation when it comes to providing or suggesting an alternative plan. So there's all sorts of potential for chaos, uncertainty, and for real Americans, right, to really be hit hard by this. So the second promise we thought we'd talk about is, is it's kind of evolved a bit, um, as many things do with Trump. Uh, it was sort of originally a plan to ban all Muslims from entering the United States. Uh, a lot of people pointed out that that was a, a slightly crazy suggestion. It's also unconstitutional. Um, and unconstitutional. <laughs> it, it's now become a plan to uh, block immigration from areas associated with terrorism. Um, I think we've got Trump talking uh, about this idea. We should only admit into this country those who share our values and respect our people. I call it extreme vetting. I call it extreme, extreme vetting. So extreme vetting. I mean, there, there no, already extreme, was quite, extreme, extreme, extreme vetting. Extreme, extreme vetting. Extreme, extreme <laughs> vetting. Uh, there already was. I mean, I, I suspect if you were a, a, an, an asylum seeker coming to the US, you might already say there was a fair bit of vetting already. Um, how much can Trump add? What can he actually do that isn't unconstitutional, as we said, and, and isn't just plain stupid? 
Well, look, first of all, he's trying to do all kinds of things that are unconstitutional. So let's not assume the Constitution is a bar, because uh, he does, as far as I can tell, he hasn't read it. He doesn't understand it. He, it doesn't seem to have any bearing on his uh, words whatsoever. So, um, uh, and then the question would be whether anybody else is going to hold him up to the standards of the Constitution. So um, in terms of extreme, extreme vetting, whatever that's supposed to mean, um, absolutely, you're right, of course, that has already been made very difficult for um, various constituencies to enter the country in ways that many of us find uh, extremely uh, disturbing disturbing and uh, unethical. Um, can he legally do it? Yes, he can. Um, pragmatically, though, what would it look like? What happens when you when somebody's coming in the border and you're trying to ascertain what their values are? And the, you know, if, if so the, the question is, how would they actually try to do it? And, and from what he's saying there, I think it sounds to a lot of people like a very strong code for uh, we will try to limit people from various areas. And, and the part that's unconstitutional is banning them on the basis of religion. It is not unconstitutional in, in, in technicalities um, to ban them on the basis of where they come from, I don't think. And certainly that's the kind of thing that they could get uh, you know, around. This is another one of these areas where the, the move from being a president-elect and a, a campaigner um, to president-elect to actually president might lead to a change of rhetoric, a change of policy. This is a very difficult um, set of ideas to implement, as Sarah said, the idea that we can even agree, especially in the current context, what American values are, what we share. These are all up for contest and grabs at the moment. But remember, if Donald Trump and his cabinet make it a priority to restrict immigration and to try and target particular groups of people, um, they're going to run into all sorts of problems, tit for tat, perhaps, with other countries that might uh, push back in very specific and concrete ways. Theresa May, who's going to be visiting Donald Trump on Friday, has already said that she's going to make one of her key agenda items to negotiate immigration um, deals, right? So the idea that the administration would take on bilateral negotiations on access and immigration, never mind the politics, it's extraordinarily time-consuming. This is an administration that has declined an offer to participate in Syria peace talks this week. Why? Because it's so busy with the transition. So I, I find it just difficult to imagine at the level of implementation. Nonetheless, this has been popular set of ideas with his base. And so we have to watch this space and see, does he expand beyond his base? Because his popularity ratings are very low, 40, maybe as high as 45% in the last few days. Um, but th these are not policies that are likely to resonate broadly with the American society. So Donald Trump, I think, is a sensitive man. He has an ego that needs to be taken care of. And when he sees that these are unpopular policies, I suspect that he might roll back some of them. Yeah, and his own attorney general, Jeff Sessions, has, has made it very clear that he doesn't support a ban on Muslims. And that I mean, the whole thing in general, for a president to block an entire class of people, that has never happened before. They might have blocked certain people from certain countries, but never sort of from so many countries and so many people. But to go back to something you were saying, Leslie, um, you mentioned that Theresa May is obviously coming over for, for a talk and, you know, she managed to be the first leader to get to meet with the president. It's very exciting. Special <laughs> we're you all must very be excited. so proud. We're, we're, we're very fusing the special proud. relationship right here. <laughs> <laughs> One of the other things she, she has said, I think, that she wants to talk about, or she's under pressure to talk about, is climate change. Because, you know, Donald Trump has also said he wants to pull out of the, the Paris Agreement and that he perhaps wants to back out of sort of other UN climate change plans. We were talking about he'll act in ways that will sort of boost his popularity. Is this something that would boost his popularity? And can he just, you know, decide actually the US is no longer going to be a leader on climate change? 
I don't think this question is so much about popularity as it is about his power base rather than his voter base. And this is about, obviously, it's about big oil. This is very obviously about uh, pleasing the big energy people represented by Tillerson, who he's decided to make the country's chief diplomat. Um, So he has very clearly signaled that in his view, diplomacy is energy business. That's what it is. And um, and so I think we're seeing here very, uh, very straightforwardly um, a series, an attempt to put through a series of policies that are not about currying favor with the voter, but are about making money for a kleptocracy in waiting, um, in my view. And so the um, I think in terms of whether it would be popular or not, it, it will be unpopular with the people who already hate Trump's guts. Um, they are, you know, it's one of the things that worries them the most about what he wants to do. I don't see a lot of indication that among his core voters in the Rust Belt and other areas that climate change is on their mind one way or the other. Um, although, you know, one might argue that it should be because it is one of the things that has led to the loss of the, you know, to the collapse of the steel industry and the collapse of, um, of their, uh, some of their industrial base. So, um, but again, you know, I think that another way to talk about what we've been saying um, in terms of the pragmatics of all of this, right? Can can he pull out unilaterally out of the Paris Agreement? It's going to be hard to do, again, because of questions of tit for tat, again, because of the way that politics actually works. Um, can he stall and can he create chaos and can he create lots of problems along the way? Yes, he can. Can he create, you know, uh, can, can, he, can he try to, to chip away at it and drag his heels? Yes, he can. But ultimately, I think one of the things that we're getting at here, and we'll all just have to see what happens, but I, and and this kind of goes to this big question about fake news that everybody's debating as well. I have to believe in something called the reality principle. I have to believe that ultimately, whatever they say and whatever they try to make happen, there are certain things that that are beyond their control that are happening, whether they like it or not. And climate change is one of those things. So whether this administration or another has to come to grips with it, he can only, they, you know, they can only delay and defer and, you know, and stick their fingers in their ears and their head in the sands and pretend that it isn't happening for so long. Eventually, reality has to, has to bite back. And, and my sense is that that's going to happen sooner rather than later in a Trump administration because they're trying to have a fantasy construction of everything. And it just won't work. It doesn't, I don't see how it can. Yeah, the the scary thing here, I think, of course, is that we saw uh, President Xi of China standing up and really being the person, the the potential global leader on questions of climate change and and really putting America on the back foot because of the line that Donald Trump has has adopted on on climate change. But I think the the room for optimism might be across the private sector in the United States. And there are many large corporations that have read the science very carefully that understand the longer term implications at the level of cost for themselves over time and have begun to implement uh, more proactively standards and policies that move them towards some of complying with some of the measures that are that are broadly contained within Paris deal. So there's, there's symbolically a huge step back with the election of Donald Trump on the question of America's leadership role in climate change. But there might still be some progress. Of course, this is tempered by his um, choice of appointment for the head of the Environmental Protection Agency. <laughs> Scott Pruitt has also been a climate science denier, which is very upsetting for those on the side of climate change. But nonetheless, it, it is a slightly more murky area because there are interest groups that um, that are continuing to act proactively um, in very positive ways across the United States. And we talked a bit there about whether 
climate change is the thing that's foremost in the minds of some of his kind of Rust Belt voters. Something that pretty unquestioningly was, was his focus on supposedly bringing back manufacturing jobs to America. He said it even in his inauguration speech, he said, buy American, hire American, which is something he also said uh, on the stump. Um, While making his hats in China and Vietnam. Exactly. Well, yes, indeed. Um, And he's now... uh, got to start acting on that. A couple of first steps. He's already uh, said he's going to withdraw from TPP. He's already put that in motion, um, which is the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, And NAFTA is something else he's talked about as well, the North American Free Trade Agreement, um, which is with Canada and Mexico. Um, Firstly, on, I mean, TPP was kind of, it, it wasn't in force anyway, so he's pulled out of it. On NAFTA, if he wants to start sort of screwing with this deal or leave it outright, how much trouble is that going to cause? And can he actually do it? Well, again, I mean, it's, it's, we're going to sound like broken records because unfortunately with Trump, we're, we're in a situation where all of the old rules have been thrown out. I mean, they really have been. That sounds, in any other circumstance, I would say, what, you know, what kind of hyperbole is that? But that is what is happening. And so the norms are being overturned. It's very, very difficult to know. And, and it's also important to say here that he has surrounded himself by a, a, a remarkably disparate and, uh, and, and fractious group um, of internal advisors, many of whom pull in different directions. So it's hard to know which of them is going to have the ultimate authority, who's going to have his ear. Many reports are coming out that he that he says whatever the last person they spoke to said to him. So, um, you know, it sort of will depend on who can get the pen in his hand in order for him to sign whatever executive action they want him to sign. Um, can he unravel? So again, we go back to can he unravel NAFTA? Yes, he can. Will it be easy to do so? No, it will not. Will it will it entail all kinds of much more, uh, um, you know, the, as as Leslie rightly said, with all of these, the devil's in the detail. What, how will the politics actually work? What kind of and and this is very similar to actually uh, the, the the most obvious analogy to British listeners will be exactly the arguments that people are having about um, the single market and Britain negotiating a new set of terms for uh, you know on, on an individual basis for all of its. Um, trading partners. Can Trump bring protectionism back? Of course he can. Um, We've had lots of protectionist presidents, and he's made it very clear that that is something that he wants to do. But that, again, is a different question from will protectionism deliver those jobs back to the Rust Belt? So he can create protectionist policies. He can, in my view, and I'm certainly not alone in this, he cannot suddenly, you know, revitalize the the, the, uh, steel industry. He can't suddenly revitalize things. And of course, as many of us uh, hold, and it seems to me very clear, uh, clearly the case, these jobs are gone not because of NAFTA or because of globalization. They're gone because of automation. They are gone because of digitization and because of computers. They are gone because um, all of those uh, uh, new capacities are, are taking the uh, jobs that factory workers used to have. Yeah, the idea that Trump can bring back this uh, four and a half million jobs in manufacturing that have been lost since it's around 1994 fantasy. is not. Yeah, the, the economists don't seem to come out in, in support of this claim. So I was exactly right that a lot of these jobs are being lost to automation. They simply don't exist anymore. I um, mean, of course, uh, supply chains and production chains are completely integrated or very highly integrated globally. So this would have a huge cost, right? Uh, throwing up tariff barriers, protectionist measures will have a very high cost for um, companies within the United States and, of course, for consumers. Um, but the, the question, one question that's very much of interest to me is at what point will Donald Trump's base start to reconsider the arguments that are being made? So on his second or third day of office saying that trans, the Trans-Pacific Partnership is being, is is done, right, is dead. Um, does that play? Is that enough? Or will there be an evaluation of what actually happens 
on the ground to their their daily, you know, their living opportunities, their work opportunities, their cost of living? Um, or will these sort of very high profile measures be enough? And at what point will that run out? And another thing he's promised, which is it's linked to the jobs thing, is to have economic growth of more than 4% a year. And that would be doubling how it is currently in the US. We've got a clip from one of his economic advisors, Steve Moore, saying how he thinks that that would be possible. I think we get more one percentage point more growth from the tax plan, just as Reagan did, Arthur. And I think we can get another percentage point growth out of energy production. But he's also had Art Laffer advising him. You know, he's had some fairly, you know, senior economic advisors backing him. I mean, does that imply that maybe this 4% thing is possible? Trump is a businessman. Well, come on. I mean, I, you know, this whole argument about Trump being a businessman and therefore he's going to, you know, jumpstart the economy is so self-evidently spurious. And, you know, you, you have to actively and, uh, you know, and energetically disregard uh, years and years of evidence of serial bankruptcy, of never paying his workers, of, of you, know, all, you know, there's lots and lots of evidence to suggest, I mean, the FT has been running stories suggesting that he's, you know, been floated by Russian uh, by Russian dark money. I mean, the, the the idea that he's actually a successful businessman who's going to, you know, kind of single-handedly push a button and bring everything back is, is again, as ludicrous as everything else that he says. Can some of his policies potentially uh, jumpstart aspects of the economy? Yes, they can. I think the biggest one that people are talking about that I'm aware of that sounds uh, at least, you know, minorly plausible is um, infrastructure. Uh, America does need investment in infrastructure. It has not had investment in infrastructure. Uh, lots of important parts of, of the American infrastructure are crumbling. Um, he, of course, wants to put private investment into that, not public investment into it, and so he wants to sell it off. But um, could that potentially jumpstart various kinds of industries? I think it could. I'm no economist. Whether it could do it to the tune of 4%, I doubt very much. But again, I'm not an economist. And so one of the questions here, now remember that the, the American economy, given the 2008 financial crisis, is actually in pretty good shape. Unemployment is low. Jobs have been growing for the last 75 months. 2.5% growth rate is modest but good. Um, but, the, but the real issue is inequality. The real issue is that 2.5% is not what most Americans are experiencing. 80% are experiencing no growth and 20% are experiencing about 5% growth, right? So the question is, is less whether or not Donald Trump can grow the economy and how he can redistribute those gains. And this is where it, there seems to be a real disconnect between what he's proposing and what's likely whether he can actually achieve those. So um, corporate tax cuts, not clear to me how that leads to a redistribution of whatever wealth he manages to grow to, again, his base. Infrastructure, Sarah's absolutely right. That is something that America desperately needs. But if he does this through the private sector, will he grow the jobs that he wants for the people that he claims to be speaking for? It's just not clear. If he pulls back Obamacare, does he provide those benefits to the people that need them most through some sort of uh, new health care plan. So again, the, the policies at the aggregate level sound nice if he can achieve them, and that's very suspect, but they don't go a long way towards redistributing and, and solving the problem of inequality in America. So that was us in conversation with Leslie and Sarah. I'd like to thank them both for coming on the show. I'd also like to thank our long-suffering producer, Jordan, for coming with us to Senate House to record the podcast. Thank you as well to everyone who listened to us. Just a reminder that you can catch us every week on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast. Don't forget to subscribe to us if you haven't already and do please give us that five-star rating. If you can't wait till next week, you can visit us at newsweek.com or pick up a copy of Newsweek. Newsweek.